My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 metres, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So for the past couple of weeks, I have been obsessed with the saga of the balloon. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It started out as a story that felt kind of silly and seemed like it would blow over, but it's become impossible to ignore. And the dispute over it has grown into something way bigger than most people could have predicted. It started at the end of January. The balloon entered American airspace and was seen flying across the U.S. for about a week. I have no idea what this thing is. A strange object in the sky, filmed by a member of the public in rural Montana. And for those of you who think uh, this might just be the moon, it is not the moon. The moon is off to my right. I can see it. Uh, It's not the moon, nor a UFO, but U.S. officials claim a Chinese spy balloon. China insisted it was a weather balloon that accidentally flew off course. But on February 4th, the U.S. shot it down. At 2.39 in the afternoon, a single air-to-air missile fired from one of two American F-22 fighter jets. A direct hit on the white dot, which has caused days of intrigue, amusement, but diplomatic drama too. Since then... Three other objects seen flying around North American airspace have also been shot down. And even though only the balloon has been linked to China, the rhetoric and accusations of Chinese spying have been escalating. United States now says that the machine was part of a global surveillance fleet. It added that the fleet was directed by Chinese military and was capable of collecting electronic communications. This week, we're going to look at how this story is being viewed in China and what this latest conflict could mean for the already strained relationship between China and the U.S. Later on the show, we're going to head to Syria, which was devastated by an earthquake two weeks ago. Aid to the northwestern part of the country, which was the hardest hit, has been really slow to come in, and some people blame Western sanctions, while others completely disagree. We're gonna get into that debate, but first, we're gonna talk about the balloon. My guest is Ling Ling Wei. She's one of the authors of Superpower Showdown, how the battle between Trump and Xi threatens a new Cold War. She's also the Wall Street Journal's chief China correspondent. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. So I want to start by going through what happened before the balloon was shot down. On February 2nd, the Pentagon announces that there's a high-altitude Chinese surveillance balloon that's entered U.S. airspace. How did the Chinese government react to that? 
Right. So the the initial reaction really was quite uh, unusually conciliatory by Beijing standards. Um, the statement that was issued on February the third says something about um, you know China regretted the incident. That was the closest thing you could have got to apology from Xi Jinping's government. But I I wanted to.、Um, Go back just a little bit.、Um, the、uh, balloon was discovered、uh, in the U.S. on February the first.、Um, you know, the Americans were not the only ones that were surprised by the discovery. On the same day,、uh, senior State Department officials informed、uh, Chinese embassy officials about、uh, you know the existence of the balloon,、uh, what they call a notification meeting. They Obviously, were surprised the、uh, embassy officials, and、um, they had no knowledge about the balloon or you know where it was from, you know what was what it was used for. So they had to confer with Beijing about what they were notified from the U.S. side. So、uh, that meeting、uh, quickly set off a scramble in Beijing. And、um, you know, as we understand it, based on reporting, you know, the Chinese were saying、uh, we worked as fast as we could. Back then, from the tone of that statement, yes, they claimed ownership, right? But they disputed that was for military purposes.、Uh, so, but but at the same time, they also tried to apologize in a very Chinese way, which not really an apology, but you, you can sense that they knew they were in the wrong in the first place. So back then, the you know they still tried to salvage Blinken's trip. Hours after Secretary of State Antony Blinken canceled a planned weekend trip to Beijing for a high-stakes meeting meant to ease tensions between the two countries, I made clear that the presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. So the, that would have been the first high-level U.S. visit to China in five years, and you know something both sides, both Washington and Beijing, had. You know, anticipated and worked very hard to prepare for.、Uh, so when the Biden administration announced that you know Blinken、um, canceled that trip,、um, there was quite a sense of surprise in the corridors of power in Beijing. Right. So so basically, when the balloon was first discovered, the Chinese government was caught off guard, and they issue the statement saying, "I think the wording was regretted the unintended entry of the airship into U.S. airspace due to force majeure." They basically said it was an accident, and then、um, Blinken calls off this trip, and the balloon is shot down. And then, how did the Chinese government's tone change, if at all? The turning point really was the shutdown、uh, of the Chinese balloon, right? That you know really caused a, quite a shift in how China has been responding to the incident, from the relatively conciliatory tone to be sounding much more aggressive these days. And their priority also has shifted from trying to salvage、uh, Blinken's trip to China or rescheduling to what officials now say, you know, preserving China's dignity. So, you know, we have seen senior 
uh, for a ministry officials in Beijing saying things like, you know, what the U.S. has done, you know, severely impacted and undermined the efforts and progress made by the two sides to stabilize the bilateral relationship. And um, just uh, in the last day or two, the Chinese almost intended to keep the balloon story uh, expanding, right? Instead of uh, trying to contain the story, now they, the story is uh, expanding even further because the foreign ministry spokesman basically came out and said, um, you know, in the last year, uh, there there were 10 U.S. balloons that had flown into PRC, China's airspace. Um, so we, we have seen basically um, the tone and uh, the remarks coming out of Beijing definitely much more aggressive and hostile. And that shows the priority has shifted. I guess we should note that there's also been other developments in the last few days, right? So there have been other flying objects that have been shot down over U.S. and Canada, even though those haven't explicitly been linked to China. And the U.S. has said that this balloon that was shot down was part of a wider surveillance program by China. And so it seems like both sides have been escalating the situation. Is that fair to say? Um, so we're definitely seeing, you know, rhetoric growing um, on both sides. And and the Chinese foreign ministry official spokesman also accused the U.S. of having basically the world's largest spy and surveillance empire, quote-unquote. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesman says, I have no knowledge about America's claim that this balloon is part of a fleet. I think it could be part of the information and public opinion war that the U.S. is waging against China. The international community can see clearly who's the world's largest espionage and surveillance country. Um, so, yeah, the, the story really is expanding as opposed to subsiding and um, uh, could have a really huge impact on the bilateral relationship, both near term and longer term. How was this presented to the Chinese public? Like, what's the narrative that you would see if you were to turn on the TV? Right. Um, so uh, state media coverage of this balloon incident and, you know, the uh, political repercussions in Washington uh, hasn't been that much. Um, there have been some social media postings about this incident. And we have seen, you know, a lot of... Uh, Chinese netizens actually kind of uh, trying to make light of this incident. Um, you know, some people are just saying, I was saying, oh, it's just a big blow. What's the big deal? And uh, we have also seen uh, social media users basically refer to uh, the uh, downed Chinese spy balloon as, uh, quote unquote, um, you know, wandering balloon, mm -hmm. which basically was an effort to pong on this very a uh, hit movie in China these days called The Wandering Earth 2. Lieutenant Colonel Liu Peiqiang, please head to the hibernation chamber immediately. Yeah, we've basically seen 
the memification of this whole saga and people turning the balloon into movie posters. And I saw people were cracking jokes that the balloon was really just an attempt at wishing Americans a happy lantern festival that was misunderstood. Yeah, we have seen people really, you know, taking this whole saga on the chain, right? Not taking it too seriously. And we haven't seen, you know, the state apparatus or uh, censors, you know, deleting those posts, uh, you know, too uh, diligently because, you know, they intentionally, um, you know, uh, allow those posts uh, to continue to exist. That shows, you know, in a way, that shows the government still has a desire to keep the relationship with the U.S. from, you know, worsening even further. They still have this desire despite the heated rhetoric. So they try to, you know, still contain the very nationalistic sentiment in China. Before the balloon was shot down, you mentioned uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was supposed to visit China. He was scheduled to meet with President Xi Jinping, and the purpose was to ease tensions over a number of different issues. Can you tell us a bit about what the state of the relationship between U.S. and China was before this whole debacle? Uh, Sure. So, um, you know, tensions between U.S. and China um, you know, have been rising in the past few years. But right before the balloon incident, there was quite a lot of hope in both capitals, both Beijing and Washington, that the year 2023 would be a year of both sides trying to repair and reset and improve the bilateral relations. People uh, in Beijing even talked about potentially the Blinken visit could lead to a summit between Biden and Xi Jinping at some point this year uh, and could lead to a resumption of dialogue, especially economic and trade dialogue between the two sides. So there, you know, hopes were really running high for improvement in bilateral relations before the incident. Right. And so neither side really seems to be backing down right now. They're trading accusations back and forth, and it doesn't seem like either side is going to budge. And so if this continues, where do you think things could go in the long term? You know, this whole balloon incident really crystallized, you know, the so-called China threat to a lot of Americans, right? Before this, to a lot of uh, American people, the concept of uh, China's threat um, had been a very vague concept, what exactly that meant, right? But this bloom, everybody knows about what bloom looks like. So, you know, this long-term impact really is, um, it, it further galvanized attention on the kind of threat uh, posed by China in Washington. So, uh, you know, it makes it very hard, almost impossible to argue for engaging with China these days. And in China, again, this is yet another example of the American arrogance, America's intention to keep China down. Oh, they make, you know, so much out of just a balloon and then 
you know, sh- shut it down and and sanction the entities, you know, linked to the balloon program. You know, in China, the you know the the kind of hostility also has risen um, much further as a result of this. So, you know, longer term, it's just really uh, this whole incident is just makes it even harder for both sides to engage and to have the kind of risk management mechanism in place to prevent exactly things like this balloon incident from happening. It's going to be a lot harder for China to try to win back uh, some of the uh, countries in Europe, for example, because the information that has been released by the U.S. and other governments uh, is that, you know, there have been Chinese balloons over their territories as well. It's definitely a huge impediment uh, for for Beijing in terms of trying to re-engage with the rest of the world. Okay, Lingling, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. It's been almost two weeks now since the catastrophic earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria. Over 40,000 people have died. Some of the most devastating scenes have come out of northwestern Syria, close to the Turkish border. The Syrian civil war may not be in the news as much, but it's now in its 12th year. And this part of the country is currently controlled by rebel groups. It's cut off from Bashar al-Assad's government, and it houses around 4 million refugees. Mansur al-Shalal is the executive director of the Stabilization Support Unit, a group based in Azaz, focused on public services in northwestern Syria. I talked to him with the help of his colleague, Fouad Dermouche, who translated for us on the call. Monzer and his team have spent the last couple of weeks on the ground helping with rescue and aid, but they've also been dealing with losses of their own. Well, this earthquake disaster actually affected every single Syrian. Every single Syrian lost a family member or a friend or someone who he or she knows. Uh, for instance, Monzer has lost his cousins in Aleppo. This is, uh, I mean, the close uh, family members uh, for him. A colleague of us at the Stabilization Support Unit lost 13 members of his family in Turkey. Uh, there are a lot, uh, there are a huge number of Syrians dead in this earthquake in, in Turkey and in northwest Syria, actually. I'm so sorry to hear about your losses. I can't imagine. I'm wondering... We've seen a lot of videos and images coming out of the destruction and, you know, the rescue efforts. 
Have you seen anything on the ground yourself that has really stuck with you and that sort of illustrates the needs that people in the region have right now? There was uh, a woman pregnant at her last month. She gave them birth when the building uh, collapsed and later she died. I mean, the rescuers uh, rescued uh, the baby and they called it her Aya. Uh, later we have visited her family. This was one of the, the incidents that I cannot forget. Another uh, incident, again, uh, was a, a girl at around 10 years. She stuck under the rubble and when they were trying to rescue her, they said, uh, do you have any family member else uh, around you under the rubble? She said, yes, I have my uh, brothers, I have my sisters and mom, but all are dead. They rescued it, but uh, after a while she will realize that she lost all her family number, uh, members and uh, she will uh, always, I mean, uh, feel the sorrow of this day. I heard that there were people who died under the rubble because the rescue efforts were delayed. Many people said that if we had a large number of vehicles, uh, such as trucks uh, and uh, diggers, etc., and other uh, equipments needed for the rescue efforts, uh, we were uh, been able to uh, at least uh, rescue as much as uh, people we can. There is now uh, people dead and the rubbles uh, need to be taken out and buried. There are uh, There is need for removing the rubble, opening the roads, uh, I mean medical uh, services, uh, establishing new camps for the people, and a lot of things that could be combined in the uh, stage. One reason for the delay, according to Mansur, is that at first there was only one border crossing on the Turkish border that aid was allowed to come through, and it had been so badly damaged by the earthquake that trucks were having a hard time getting across. The most affected city uh, in Turkey is Antakya, which is uh, the city uh, near the Babel Hawa border. This city, uh, almost its infrastructure and uh, buildings almost uh, totally destroyed. So the UN and the international community said there, there is a logistical problem in terms of delivering the uh, response to the uh, people in northwest Syria. Other border crossings were initially closed because Russia, an ally of the Syrian government, had vetoed a UN resolution to keep them open, saying that they violated the Syrian government's sovereignty. Since then, the government's agreed to allow aid to pass through two more border crossings, and now it's trickling in. Uh, the other uh, thing is that we, uh, we don't have here a, legit a legitimate government. 
still uh, the legitimate government for Syria is the uh, Assad regime, uh, Assad's government, uh, which already, I mean, kills us and uh, displaced all these people from other cities to northwest Syria. Now there are over 2 million people displaced in the region and they are living in camps. What a kidding. The regime actually is trying to make use of this uh, crisis to get uh, some political gains and to reduce the uh, sanctions imposed to it by the U.S. Many analysts agree with Monser that the government is finding opportunity in the earthquake after many years of being an international pariah. The regime, which has bombed civilians, killing hundreds of thousands and displacing millions of people, has been under Western sanctions that prevent Syria from importing technology, machine parts, and fuel. They also put limits on its banking sector. And while there are exemptions for humanitarian aid, they don't apply for reconstruction efforts. These sanctions, according to the Assad government, but also many aid groups on the ground, were preventing aid from coming through. Uh, how these uh, uh, sanctions hinder the humanitarian access? I'll tell you very simple that a lot of the aeroplane, cargo aeroplane, refused to land on Syrian airports because of the American and European sanctions. So. And while the U.S. initially denied that the sanctions were having an impact on humanitarian aid, a few days ago, they temporarily lifted them on anything related to earthquake relief. And while some people say that this doesn't go far enough, Monzer and many other opponents of the Assad regime say that it shouldn't have been done at all. I asked him what role the government had played in preventing aid from getting into northwestern Syria. At the first day of the crisis, when the uh, earthquake hit the region, uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, declared that uh, they are ready to provide assistance to uh, northwest Syria if the people there need it. But on the other hand, we talked to the people in, in the regime-controlled areas. Some people said that the regime... Uh, distributed uh, some aids to the people affected, but later, uh, such as tents, such as blankets, beds, etc., they distribute, distributed it in front of uh, UN officials, but later, when the UN officials departed the area, they recollected what they distributed uh, from the people. Another point is that uh, at the beginning of the crisis, Bashar al-Assad said that, that the government do not have the capabilities uh, to respond to the crisis because of the uh, sanctions imposed uh, on it. Uh, but this is not true because the sanctions doesn't target the humanitarian response or the response to the crises, etc., there are now also people calling for the complete lifting of sanctions and not just temporarily lifting the sanctions because they're saying that would help the country rebuild and recover in the long term and that it's not just about immediate assistance. What do you think about that? 
انا بس بدي بدي اعلق لك شغله بسيطه انه بدات why uh, we went out on a revolution against the regime in 2011 is due to two reasons one is legal reasons and constitutional reasons and the other is economical reasons now if you go to the to damascus you will see there is two communities this community is living very lux, uh, luxury uh, life Another community, normal people, normal Syrian people, they barely getting uh, the food or bread to silence their hunger, actually. If the sanctions are lifted, uh, the regime will get stronger. Uh, it will find this place to, I mean, uh, uh, normalization with the other governments. It will have the ability to uh, kill its people. Many people in northwestern Syria who fled the Assad regime don't believe that lifting sanctions is the right move. But not everyone agrees. Alina Duhan is a UN special rapporteur, and she spent some time in Syria back in November. She asked NGOs and UN agencies what their main challenges were in delivering humanitarian aid. And she concluded that sanctions needed to be lifted. I asked her what she would say to people like Mansur, who are staunchly opposed to sanctions relief for the Assad government. Well, uh, I would start with making the general statement that I disagree with that position, uh, because uh, the humanitarian exemptions which really existed in the pre-earthquake uh, sanctions regimes were extremely narrow, were very ineffective and inefficient. Any possibility for delivery of humanitarian aid turned to be limited to a very narrow list of goods, uh, to medicine only very limited scope of medical equipment and some food. Nothing which could be qualified as being aimed for reconstruction. Uh, for some small organizations and the national NGOs, it became absolutely impossible to get donations because Syrian IP addresses as well as Syrian phones are blocked from the possibility to register at fundraising platforms. Many donors are reluctant to deliver goods outside of the United Nations system that limits the quantity at lim and limits the possibilities for the delivery. That's why, yes, I absolutely disagree. How do you think the sanctions have contributed to the consequences that we're seeing now from this earthquake. Do you think that things would be as bad as they are now if the sanctions weren't in place? Well, first of all, I need to say that uh, it, uh, whatever I will say shouldn't be interpreted in the way that's only sanctions or not sanctions at all. And as concerns to the earthquake, I need, and the consequences of earthquake, I need to mention that the impact of sanctions is twofold. First of all, as uh, economy was already in the, I would say, disastrous state, uh, the primary attention used to be paid in the country to the basic survival of the population. That basically means that if you take care of food only, you pay much less attention to the preventive mechanisms to be able to do seismological control and to be ready for the consequences of the earthquake. 
Second part is the availability of necessary goods. The first problem is, besides medicine and food, the first problem is fuel. As far as the energy sector of Syria is under the severest part of sanctions, fuel access is very limited. What would you say to people who say that lifting sanctions would further benefit the Assad regime and prolong their time in power, as my guest was saying? When I was doing my country visit to Syria, my main question was, what do you see as the impediments for delivery of humanitarian aid? And not a single interlocutor told me that we are scared that maybe government will, will misuse it. All of them we are absolutely aligned in saying that sanctions, complicated, overlapping sanctions legislation, very narrow humanitarian exceptions, overcompliance by bank, threats with secondary sanctions, and civil penalties and criminal penalties. That's why I would call those who is presenting this position to think about people which live in poverty, with, which drink dirty water, which die because of the preventable diseases, children which do not go to school because schools can't be rebuilt. We need to think about people as those who are in need and uh, think about them first, rather than about uh, any political concerns. How do you think the international community can help Syrians right now? Well, when we speak about the current situation, I hope very much that the United Nations is engaging more and more actively so, uh, to guarantee that humanitarian aid is first of all, of all received. Because, for example, recently there were numerous reports that donors became reluctant to provide humanitarian assistance to Syria, and it decreased enormously within the last two years. I believe it's a higher time to understand that we all live in solidarity and we need to help these people. Thank you so much. This is really helpful. Thank you very much. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Logos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shavison. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.